often when you hear about golden ages in fiction, it's there was a golden age, but now everything is crap because we need conflict for this story slash video game slash RPG. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, B.H. Pierce, and today we'll be discussing Golden Ages. Joining me are Janet from Worldville Anvil, Sean, and John from our uh, Worldcasting editing department. Uh, would you mind introducing yourselves? Sure, thanks so much. Uh, I'm Janet from World Anvil. I'm a fantasy author. I'm an RPG writer, most recently writing the Dark Crystal RPG. And uh, I also run the World Anvil world building platform, campaign manager, and novel writing software. Hi, I'm uh, John. I'm uh, involved with the World Building Magazine as an editor, blog editor, and worldcasting editor, kind of a threefold there. Um, and in my personal private life, I'm uh, publisher in academic publishing and i play a lot of rpgs uh, hi i'm sean i'm a irish college student and a writer for the world building magazine uh, yeah welcome everybody times of peace and prosperity are scattered throughout history like gold flakes in a riverbed the pax romana the bella Pak, and the reign of the Yongle Emperor are all periods held in high regard by historians. But just what is a golden age? Where do they start? Where do they end? And are they even real? To start off, I'll put a question to our guests. How would you define or describe a golden age? I guess one of the most typical explanations is, uh, again, this, as you said, an, a time of peace and prosperity but more specifically when art and culture are able to really thrive and they reach new heights. Now that may be as an expression of political power, that may be as conspicuous consumption, but it's something that's very common amongst all golden ages that you see this real flourishing of the arts, whatever the arts is considered to be within that culture. And that makes sense. One of the things that whenever we think about something of having a golden age, it's whether it's the Romans or the French or the Greeks or whatever, the first thing that comes to mind is usually like grand monumental architecture, like the big, huge things that they left behind. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, while I think that that is definitely the case, it's also dangerous because as we look at the past, what remains is material culture. It's the stuff that remains, like the, the concrete stuff, right? We don't see the stuff that, that falls away. We don't see fashion. We don't see other things that are less tangible, less able to stand the test of time. So it's very easy to look at things like the Roman monumental arches, like um, or even things like L'Arc de Triomphe, which are, of course, mock monumental arches, and, uh, and think that that is the epitome of the Golden Age. But... Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion because I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Oh, yeah, to, to kind of add to Janet's point, uh, almost all the golden ages we talk about it from a historical perspective are kind of, you know, they're designated almost in opposition, you know, because these are the high points. We're looking back and we're going, well, we know that the Roman Empire in such and such period of years peaked and this was kind of when such grand monuments were being constructed. So it gives the illusion, you know, that at the time everyone knew they were in a golden age and that this was kind of, everyone was kind of on board with this conception of it being kind of the golden times, but that's really not the case. You know, no one lives with the expectation that tomorrow is going to get really bad or that in the next 50 years, everything's going to fall apart. We kind of assume that the time we're living in is the normal. So it's almost, we're defining golden ages solely by looking back and saying, well, actually that was about as good as it ever got. 
I found an interesting quote while I was looking for one to wrap up this episode with, and it was, people who live in golden ages walk around complaining about how yellow everything is. And I think that speaks to what you were talking about, is how you really don't know when you're in the moment. Yeah, there's a wonderful example, actually, that you mentioned, uh, La Belle Epoque, which uh, was in France, like 1880, before World War One. Um, and yes, it was a time of peace, regionally at least, of uh, relative prosperity. Um, it was also a time of horrible colonial expansionism and, and all sorts of other kind of difficult things. But it's called La Belle Epoque in retrospect compared to World War One. I think I think anything would have been La Belle Epoque compared to World War One, which was, you know, absolutely horrific. Right. I think that a lot of how you define something like a golden age is sort of you frame it through the perspective of another time almost because Pax Romana, like you were discussing, we kind of just naturally compare that to the terrible times of Rome, like when they were seeding ground almost yearly to the, uh, well, they considered them savages, but I mean, yeah. I think we're seeing kind of a, a consensus building here is that a golden age depends immensely on context and exists by comparison rather than by um, by objective observation. Yeah, definitely. And I think that even within a golden age, uh, it's not golden for everyone. I think it was, um, oh, good Lord, what was his name? Um, the guy who wrote Huckleberry Finn, help me out here, Americans. Mark Twain. It was Mark Twain who said, it's not so much a golden age as a gilded age. That is to say, it's golden for some, but for others, it's downright crappy. They are the they are living the woodworm-eaten existence beneath the gold foil. You know, it's and like you were saying about the uh, like the Belle Epoque back then. It was great in France, but uh, I'm I'm not the I'm not an, a really an authority on French colonial expansion. But I feel around that time they would have been going into like Vietnam and and South China, not not South China, but Indochina and you know doing the colonial thing so that particular period of time was great in france but not so great in vietnam and cambodia and the like yeah absolutely and i mean if you look at the roman empire which had slaves if you look at um things like the uh the state of athens the ancient state of athens which had three categories you could be a citizen that was very very good a foreigner that was kind of meh you didn't have many rights or a slave where you really didn't have many rights at all this was still considered a golden age, but again, definitely not golden for everyone. Um, Athens in particular, in particular is kind of a fascinating example because we're so used to kind of seeing it in, in pop culture and pop history as this kind of where we're exposed to the golden age, you know, the, the years when democracy or what their form of democracy anyway was in power and kind of when everything was kind of going well. But, you know, for the vast majority of Athens' existence, things were not nearly as great. They didn't have an empire. Um, they were ruled by oligarchs. And so even our perception of Athens has been kind of distorted by the golden age that only existed for such a short period of time in comparison to the actual history of the city. Yeah, that is such a good point. I mean, from the conversation that we're having, I'm starting to think that golden ages are kind of an artifact of reception history. They have very little to do with what was going on and much more to do with how people later perceive what was going on. Boy, this is going to be a short episode. World, world casting on Golden Ages. They don't exist. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> okay, I have, I have a counter argument um, and I've been sitting on this. This is one of my absolutely favorite uh, archaeological sites and it's called Lapensky Via. It's uh, close to what is now modern day Serbia. And it is one of the few places where people abandoned agriculture in favor of, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because in the chat, people are shouting out catfish. Uh, yeah, people abandoned agriculture in favor of hunter gathering. And the reason that they did this is that at the Lipensky via site, there is a massive waterfall that uh, has all of this silt and crap coming down into a big pool. And in the big pool 
a massive freaking catfish. All right. So the people at the Penske Via in the prehistoric era were like, screw this farming luck. Farming is really hard. Let's just eat giant catfish instead. And what happened? Art flourished. They started making art of giant catfish. It's absolutely amazing. The archaeological artifacts that you find from this site are mind-bendingly phenomenal, very fish-based. And uh, it's a wonderful example of a golden age where technologically it went backwards rather than forwards, but it otherwise has all the hallmarks of the golden age. So I really like this as a sort of counter example, you know? So for those of you uh, listening at home, we've recorded this episode once before and we had a, a recording issue, so we have to re-record it. And the catfish uh, subjects came up before. Now we're very excited to see it come back. To be fair, they are very badass catfish. Very true. Um, so we seem to be coming kind of to agreement that golden ages are a product of hindsight more than anything else. But for the sake of continuing this podcast for longer than 10 minutes, what element? Uh, what elements do you think must come together to create a golden age, a, a particularly productive and a particularly productive and exceptional, let's say, period in the history of a culture? I think one of the really important things is uh, surplus. So, you know, if you're going to have all these artists running around and painting the Sistine Chapel, if you're going to have all of this technological advancement, if you're even if you're going to have war or if you're not going to have war, you need surplus because all of those people who are doing all of those things are not producing food. They are doing something else. So your agriculture has to be at a certain state that you can create a surplus to feed all the people who aren't doing agriculture and are going about making the world golden and wonderful in simple terms. I think political stability would probably be something or would probably be a requirement as well. Although there's probably some examples out there where there was maybe a golden age with some political instability. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, education is also a really important part of this. So, you know, that doesn't have to be formal education. It doesn't necessarily have to be school education. Um, but you see a lot of sort of formalized apprentices, apprenticeships rather, uh, things like guild apprenticeships, that kind of stuff. Um, again, as you're driving towards advancement, as you're driving towards, you know, all of these things that we associate with the golden age, I think education is a really key part of that. And again, that's something that war really screws up. So that may be something that um, that is a factor as well. Yeah, um, I, I definitely agree. You know, in more general terms, you kind of need a way for information to pass on and kind of sustain itself. Otherwise, you know, you might have a few brief years of everything running great or beginning to run great and then it'll all crash down because no one's able to keep the wheels spinning. Um, and I think for me, this is kind of would lead into what I consider kind of very important for a golden age is often you need some kind of culture shock or cultural mixing. Um, because a lot of the times that you see kind of golden ages um, with new art, new culture, new building techniques, they're not necessarily invented straight out of kind of thin air. They're often imported and improved upon. And it means that in these times of plenty, when there is kind of the wealth necessary to, necessary to build all these, build or paint or construct all these wonderful things, there's now kind of outside expertise that can be relied on and then kind of played around with, you know, you can't be creative without having inspiration. You know, that's a really good point because when, when I think on a lot of golden ages of the past, most of them tend to come after periods of great upheaval. Like um, the Pax Romana was after the end of the Roman civil, Roman civil wars between um, Caesar and Pompey and, and the triumvirate and all that stuff. And it was considered a golden age because it put an end to all that you know, strife. So perhaps that's one ingredient for a golden age. It needs to follow an age of um, disorder. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember that golden ages are very localized. Like, sure, they're having a golden age up in England, but in the Indian Ocean, it's dreadful or vice versa. So, you know, they're having a golden age in, in Holland, sure. But, you know, elsewhere, things are, things are getting worse rather than better. 
So, um, yeah, I think that's also an important factor of golden ages is, is are they regional? Are they nation based? Are they sort of nation block based? It's, a, it's an interesting thing to consider, in my opinion. Oh, I definitely agree. And um, I think I think the way we've been talking about golden ages so far, so far, is that it kind of assumes stability. But I'd like to throw an, an idea at you, at the at, at you guys. We've talked about Pax Romana and all these things, but would you generally consider the Italian Renaissance a golden age? Because there was a massive outpouring of of culture in this point, but it was a very very chaotic time period. All these city states in northern Italy, all you know, fighting each other. Well, I think to an extent, you kind of you have to you have to look inwards to see that stability because. You know, there was certainly a lot of chaos in the Italian peninsula. But if you look at how Venice is doing, they're not exactly facing major internal setbacks. And they end up going off and having a great old time for quite a while before the Ottomans push them back. Um, so you kind of get this situation where even if kind of on the overall there's a collapse, you can get players who are perfectly positioned to actually benefit from the chaos as in the case of Venice, you know, they profited immensely from the, the collapse of the Eastern Roman Empire. So even though it was a very chaotic period, I'd argue that you'll still see the players who come out on top often have remarkably stable internal politics and situations because otherwise they can't really get that progression to go on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, talking about Italy in the Renaissance is a dangerous game because italy was city states it wasn't it wasn't a, a unified country so there are some areas where things were going really really well and there are some areas where things were going really quite badly and there are some areas that were still kind of greek at that point so um and again with with the other example of you know venice which was a mercantile empire that owned the dodecanese i think and various other bits of what is now greece so yeah again like this massive regionalism comes in. But I think the other thing that is very characteristic of that period is that there were so many big families vying against each other. And those big families were using art and culture as conspicuous consumption to create power bubbles for themselves, to create prestige for themselves. And that's what remains of that era. So again, it's tempting to look back and say this is a golden age because we see all of this amazing art and all this amazing culture and so much money was being poured into that. But um, I, I don't know if that was really a golden age or just an age of people trying to one-up the next door neighbor with, with the nicest fresco and the best, you know, the best music and the, you know, the most popular stuff, you know. Uh, Janet, you've used that phrase, um, conspicuous conspicuous consumption twice now. Um, would you mind defining that for anyone, for any listeners who might not be quite sure what that is? Oh, sure. Um, I come from a background of archeologists. So it's a very common term within that, within that space because you're talking about uh, material culture, you're talking about stuff essentially. Uh, so conspicuous consumption is anything that you spend money on to show that you have money. So historically, that might be people keeping horses. That might be people buying pineapples in the 18th century. Yes, pineapples were an example of conspicuous consumption at one point. Uh, and if you weren't rich enough to buy a pineapple and show it off, because like you could totally buy your own pineapple, uh, you would rent a pineapple. And this actually happened in the 18th century. So I guess the modern day equivalent is buying like a Gucci bag or I don't know what do, what do people buy. I'm not really into into like buying stuff. Um, like a Gucci bag or having the latest brand clothing or fancy hats. I don't know that kind of stuff. iPhones, thank you, exactly that kind of stuff. That is modern day conspicuous consumption. You always have the latest thing. You you always have the expensive thing. You don't just have an iPhone. You have a diamond iPhone. That would be an example of conspicuous consumption. It's pretty fascinating, actually, because I feel like that kind of makes me think the Italian Renaissance could be almost the opposite of a golden age, because, I mean, granted, there were a lot of great things that came out of it, but it, it almost comes across as sort of decadent. And we've seen that decadence is kind of the downfall of uh, society, or it can be at least. Hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know if I would consider that a golden age exactly. It's close, maybe. And as we've discussed, golden ages are, are a lot... Golden ages are all about perception. Um, someone who really likes art and sculpture and music would look at the, you know, Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance as a golden age. But someone who's, you know, more about, who's more interested in democracy, stability, you know, effective tax structure, that sort of thing, might look at it and go like, what a horrible period of chaos with, you know, some very pretty frescoes. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. Or I guess an even more extreme example, it is now time to wave the Irish flag. <laughs> but um, one of the, the kind of fascinating things for me is how um, the kind of early Christian Ireland is kind of portrayed um, from a kind of, I guess, popular historical perspective in Ireland is it's this great time of new learning, culture, art, you know, um, the introduction of Christianity to the island really kind of kickstarts this renaissance to continue the kind of theme. Uh, so, you know, looking at that kind of, from that perspective, you know, looking at the, the body of early uh, medieval Irish literature, looking at all the statues that remain, uh, going and visiting a place like Lendalock where it was effectively a, a small monastery acting as a city, you know, um, you would think it was a great time to be alive in Ireland. But if you actually look at how things played out, no, it was it was it was kind of awful to be an Irish person. It, it's because the entire political structure was fragmented into tiny, tiny kingdoms. And the person who was in charge, you know, nominally he was a king. Uh, but what he really was, was your local big man. He was the guy who could convince his family to take up arms and go steal your cows. Uh, and in fact, you can even see references to this kind of instability and chaos um, in the fact that one of the biggest uh, or one of the kind of constants of Gaelic um, folk, kind of Gaelic genres, I guess, of uh, would be the tone or the uh, the raid. And now some of these obviously are written down by the monks who are keeping track of um, or who are kind of writing about the culture they've integrated into. But, um, you know, yeah, like the, the tone literally stands for cattle raiding because that was what everybody did. They stole each other's cows. So, you know, I'm sure the the poor farmer who just lost his entire flock or his entire herd really would not consider that time period a golden age, but because of a multitude of complicated reasons um, that touch on the thorny question of nationalism, uh, it's it's basically like portrayed as a golden age in a great time um, that is kind of ruined by the Vikings coming in uh, as the first tourists to the, the island. <laughs> tourists. Love it. I'm from, I'm, I grew up in a tourist town, so I'm always down for, for crapping on the tourists. <laughs> I think it's quite accurate. I mean, they come in on their boat, they cause chaos, they drink too much, they burn stuff. Yeah, tourists, I see it. You're right. Sounds accurate. Yes. And I like, I like the point you bring up about the, you know, the guy who just had his cattle stolen. Because, I mean, I doubt, I doubt, people, on the, I doubt people on the ground are like, you know, after they get like all their you know, cattle herd wrestles, then outstanding the thing like, boy, this is going to make a great poem someday. Exactly. You know, um, you don't exactly see the, the poetic quality in being held at sword point. Unless you're really, really devoted to poetry. <laughs> I think it brings up a really interesting point, though, which is that the idea of golden ages are a fantastic political weapon. Like, wasn't it better before X happened? Weren't we having a golden age? And then so-and-so came and ruined it. So we should just go back to the golden age that we were having before. The only way we can do that is to get rid of so-and-so. Now, anyone who get, wants to get rid of so-and-so or make whatever change or go to war with whoever it was, that is a fantastic reason to look back in history, point at something and say, that was a golden age, people. 
I think this is something you can absolutely use so well in world building, in storytelling, in GMing for RPGs, in writing for novels. It's it's such a power move. Um, it's actually something Cicero uses. He says, you know, in the future, we will look back at this moment and tell our sons about it. We will stand on this hill with our sons and tell them about this moment. It's this idea of glorifying the past. And, and the word golden age, I think it's, yeah, yeah, political weapon 101. I'm not saying it's always that way, but it's, it's powerful. And in the wrong hands, it's disastrously powerful. And we can even bring it back to our previous discussion about uh, the Italian Renaissance, because the whole big philosophical, philosophical thrust about the Renaissance was everything is terrible right now. Everything was so much better in the days of like ancient Rome and Greece. And we need to learn everything we can about them so we can bring back that great period. So even at this point in time that we discussed where some people think it's a golden age at the time they were thinking everything shit, we need to look to the past. So I think that really explanation of the idea of a golden age as a, as a political device, as well as a, you know, as well as a, you know, hindsight 2020 thing uh, really does apply. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say something very contentious. Um, feel free to delete it from the podcast if you would like to. But uh, Brexit is a fantastic example of that, where a lot of the rhetoric surrounding it was, we don't need this stupid Europe. We were better before we had the stupid Europe when we were in control of our own affairs. Uh, and it was essentially, they were using things that were so evocative of World War II slogans, like make, do and mend, and that kind of stuff. It was really scary. Um, and, that's essentially what they were saying is before the EU, we were stronger. That was a golden age for Britain when Britain meant strong people, essentially. So that's a, a very recent and pertinent example of exactly what we're talking about. Agrees and scared American. Yeah, no, Brexit is, is definitely a fantastic example of this in action. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't say things. <laughs> It's too contentious, um, but um, to use another kind of example of a previous example uh, in British history, uh, you could look at the, the whole rhetoric surrounding the Falklands War in the sense that prior to that period, things were not going great in Britain for quite a while. And this may be a trend that kind of continues up to, to Brexit, one might say. Uh, <laughs> But uh, there's this kind of conception of the British pride and nationalism that rears its head um, around the whole issue of the Falklands, because from a, a purely tactical perspective or a strategic perspective, the Falklands were not a prosperous colony. There wasn't um, much there to defend. And there was also the fact that there had been a long period of kind of decolonization going on uh, from the British administration. You know, they were trying to get rid of places. So, and they even tried to get rid of the Falklands a few times. Of course, and once Argentina decided it wanted them and the, the whole war broke out, very quickly the, the ruling powers uh, that be, uh, that were, you know, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party latched on to this notion of proving that Britain wasn't a decaying power, even if from a purely objective material perspective, they were. So it was it was kind of a reaction to the, the loss of the golden age. That's absolutely true. And the other thing is that even if they are completely justified, it doesn't mean it's not a bad tool to use. So the Jacobite Rebellion, the British treated the Scottish absolutely horrifically. It was bad people. Um, and so a lot of the rhetoric surrounding the Jacobite Rebellion was again, wasn't it better before the British were here? Before the British, it was a golden age. We had no problems. Everything was wonderful because they wanted the British gone. And it, you know, of course it wasn't perfect before, um, but that's how the rhetoric was spun. Uh, and I can safely say that because I'm pretty sure I had uh, people on both sides of that rebellion. So uh, yeah, I'm allowed to talk about that. 
I feel bad for whoever's going to have to moderate the comments of this episode. Like, they better know a lot about British history or they're going to be really confused with the flame wars going on. <laughs> yes, you've got a British person and an Irish person to talk about Golden Ages. What did you think was going to happen? What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> but I'd like, to, I'd like to pivot away from current events right now um, and talk about fiction. Because one of the... One of the things we like to do on this channel, uh, on this podcast, is not only talk about how to world, uh, the actual, you know, nuts and bolts of building a world and world building, but how to use your world once you've built it. And most people use their worlds for, you know, fictional purposes, like running a tabletop game, writing a story, making a video game. So I, I think I'd, I'd want to ask, what do you guys think are some great fictional examples of golden ages i'd love to hear uh some highlights often when you hear about golden ages in fiction it's there was a golden age but now everything is crap because we need conflict for this story slash video game slash rpg and that's gonna come from the crappiness of the world so i think that's often one of the tropes that you see and a great example of that is the novel elantris by brandon sanderson uh, in which, yes, there was a time when there was magic and people would sort of transcend and become these amazing magical beings of light. But now what happens is they become basically walking dead people and everything is awful. And instead of going to a city of glowing loveliness, they go to a city of yuck and slime and yeek. And they're basically zombies, essentially. Um, I'm not going to give any spoilers. The book is very, very good. I really enjoyed it. But um that is a wonderful example of the trope. Essentially, there was a golden age. It was great. That's gone. Boo sucks. I think there's a couple examples from Tolkien's work, if I recall. Um, I haven't read the Silmarillion in like forever, but I think there's it, it was the world is called Arda, if I recall, and before the wars among Melkor, who would go on to become Morgoth, and the other gods or god stand-in figures it was called arda unmarred and then afterwards it was called arda marred or something similar to that and it was representative of a golden age where just the gods lived in peace amongst one another sort of and then i think the second golden age in tolkien's work is after that yeah it would be because it's it involves the elves and it's um I think it's the gods and the elves living amongst one another, sort of akin to um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So essentially when the elves fall, for lack of a better term, um, the Golden Age ends, sort of akin to the you know fall of man. Funny you should say that. I was just about to reference Adam and Eve as you know one of the original... Uh, golden ages, I suppose, although it doesn't really count because there was progress. But, you know, in terms of peace, prosperity, plenty, uh, that's absolutely sort of, you know, one of the one of the seeds of the trope, in my opinion. To an extent, Adam and Eve is almost like a reverse golden age in that everything was actually going great. And then things progressed and everything started going downhill from there. So what you're saying is Adam and Eve are the catfish of golden ages. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's another trope about, you know, eras of peace and golden ages, which is there was a primordial being. And then the primordial being had a few children, which were also very powerful beings and everything was fine. And then they had a few children who were also relatively powerful and everything was less good. And then they had like a billion children who were the mortals and now everything is terrible. So that's a very common trope as well as you see this sort of inflation of populace and sort of deflation of power and with it the general feeling that things are getting worse if you see what i mean and also in fiction it's not only there used to be a golden age but the end of a great epic fantasy saga could be you know and now these are the days of you know the new rightful king sitting on the throne you know now this is a golden age of peace and prosperity so it seems that golden ages can exist before a story and after a story, but they have a hard time existing during a story. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, going back to the Gilded Age that I was talking about before, I think that's more common as a story setting itself. Everything seems wonderful on, a, on the surface, but the more you go in, the more rotten the core becomes. I think that that, that provides some good fodder for, for a tabletop setting as well, because there's nothing players like more than a good mystery. And if you have, if you set them into this world that like seems, you know, bright and beautiful, and then they start finding like, oh, yeah, there's demons in the mirrors, and there's a lich under my bed, and oh God, what's that on the ceiling? It's, it creates a, a very exciting world. I think that's also um, where you can kind of play around a lot with the conception of how people perceive golden ages, you know, and for an, a fictional example that I think does this very well, um, Nicholas, uh, I'm going to butcher the, the name, I'm not great with names, but uh, Kings of the Wild uh, by Nicholas Eames is basically punk rock bands or rock bands, but fantasy D&D. Uh, it's a great book. I'd highly recommend it, but it plays around with that conception because we're, we're kind of dealing with someone going around getting the band back together, as it were. So they're renowned famous warriors, uh, but, you know, they broke up years ago and then time has not been kind. So it's one last hurrah kind of thing. But it's interesting in that there's kind of a, almost a back and forth between the new kind of groups and the new people who are looking to stake their claim to fame and get out and make their name. And then you've got the older people who are kind of much more jaded. So their time is seen as a golden age. But if you actually look at how it kind of left many of the characters who kind of participated in it, you would be hard pressed to actually call it a golden age. You know, um, which I thought was great because it, there's this kind of chasing of a golden age almost, you know, people want to live in one or they aspire to kind of be like the one they see. So, again, great book, punk rock bands, but in fantasy d and I love that example. Uh, you've reminded me of another great use of golden ages which is exactly that, chasing after it. So as a real example, Rome, obviously massive, super important empire. Um, and there were various different groups of people who saw themselves as the spiritual or the actual inheritors of this Roman empire. So Charlemagne would be one. Um, the Ottoman empire saw itself as the inheritors of the Roman Empire, I hate to say the name, but the Nazis, um, Hitler also saw himself as a spiritual inheritor of the Holy Roman Empire. The Russians called themselves Tsar because they saw themselves again as a, as a sort of uh, inheritor of the Roman Empire as well. So this empire that completely fell apart a very long time ago has rippled through history as people have tried to relive it, recreate it, start it again, believe they are the living incarnation of it. I think that's fascinating storytelling. I think it, it gives you so much stretching back and stretching forward in the world that you can use as a world setting tapestry to tell amazing stories. I think it's worth saying too that we've we've been talking a lot of we've been talking about a lot of Western examples in here of, of European ones, and I what and what you just said about Rome falling and then people trying to rebuild it over the years reminded me of the the dynastic cycle of China, um, and how it's you have you know this dynasty, everything's going great, it falls apart, period of civil war, new dynasty. And this just kind of wave function that goes throughout history, whereas they view their history as very cyclical. But the Chinese literati um, are always on about the idea of a golden age being in the past and we need to emulate the past. So even if you're pulling your inspiration from cultures um, other, than, um, other than Western ones, it's a very powerful impulse um, throughout the world. Yeah. Um... And I think as well, it's kind of how a region views golden ages will definitely be impacted by what they perceive as the first big one. And I know it's terrible to immediately go back to a Western example after you've very, very um, graciously uh, moved the conversation on. I think if you look at kind of 
kind of the Greek culture reacted to the, the Bronze Age collapse is very telling in how that would go on to shape kind of the Western perception of the Golden Age. Uh, because, you know, you get the Iliad and the Odyssey and there's heroes running around everywhere who have, you know, they're, they're clearly more awesome than everybody else. Um, uh, and there's generally a treatment of them as these fantastic people. And it's a real time of wonders uh, and horrors as well, because every good hero needs a good monster to fight. Uh, or in the case of Odysseus, one to horribly blind and mock. Um, but yeah, there's, but in the actual fact, like a lot of the kind of the stories they end up telling are just a reaction to the horrific collapse of what was kind of Mycenaean civilization. Uh, when everything went south for pretty much every major kind of empire um, in Mesopotamia, uh, in kind of, you know, the Middle East, Anatolia, um, Egypt, all of them just kind of collectively stopped functioning for a period of time. And it left a really big collective scar uh, in a way that you can kind of see rippling through back to Rome, back to, you know, the Charlemagne or the Charlemagne and it just keeps going. It's that I that I yeah, that idea of things just rippling throughout history and this idea of a golden age just sticking very prominently in people's mind people's minds because it's a it's a great idea, this idea of this great wonderful place in time where everything was was everything was wonderful. But I'd like to when I hear golden age, I usually hear it in either in one of two contexts. One is what we've been talking about so far when you know uh, it's the golden age of a nation or a state or of a people it's a very it's very it's very broad in a way it's, it involves a lot of things it can involve military culture economics etc but the other way we use golden age um kind of as as rhetoric or rhetoric or metaphor one of those words is in when we're talking about the the golden age of a craft like you'll have the golden age of cinema or the golden age of aviation or things like that. Ah, nomenclature. Thank you, Janet. Uh, um, the golden age. Yeah, you'll have the golden age of cinema, of art, of of theater, or something. So you can also have golden ages of like of a craft that seems to be at its absolute apex. And I'm wondering if you think that. I'm wondering if if the uh, the people on this episode think that the same rules that we've talked about for golden ages to a culture or a state apply to a craft. I would say to a degree, I agree that the same principles apply. Um, like the best example I can think of here is that people say that we are currently, or at least we maybe, maybe, maybe it's ended, but um, we were or are in the golden age of television because of shows like, oh, I don't know, uh, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, um, just, just all of those serialized stories that are really well told and really well made. But I don't think that the the principle that we oh god i lost my train of thought again um i'll come back to this i'm sorry i think that um one of the principles of a golden age that we've discussed is it can only be a golden age in hindsight and i feel like that is not the same in craft because craft is so much about the common techniques that take you forward, the uh, the changing of fashion, the changing of values within a space. And that's something that can't be viewed in, in hindsight in the same way. So, yeah, sure, now we think, well, what we're watching is the Golden Age of television. Somebody from 1940 would look at what we're watching and be horrified, potentially. Um, there's an argument in music that, you know, if... Bach heard the piano, he would love it because it's the golden age of instruments or something. And, you know, that is not at all necessarily the case. We, we can't say that because it's just another development in the study of, you know, in instrument making, organology. So I think it's a, it's a dangerous game to try and apply the same principles because I think within crafts, Culture and fashion plays such a strong role that is not the same when we look at golden ages on a larger scale. 
Yeah, like to a, to a very large extent, when you look at things like art and architecture and crafts, there, there's not kind of, you can't progress in the same way in them, like Janet was saying that very well. Um, you know, it's not like invent, uh, invent this particular pattern of weaving. No, you get like twice as much culture points. It kind of culture and art, they move in different ways. So the, there might be a particular kind of bloom of, you know, impressionism, you know, the way we divide art up into different eras, you know, there is a period in which impressionism was paramount. That, that's absolutely a golden age for impressionism. But it's sort of like, would you, would you go and look at that as a, as a golden age of art in general? Um, because it's a particular school that's flourishing, but that doesn't mean everyone is flourishing. It doesn't even mean there's a necessarily like a, an actual leap forward for art. So I think that's interesting in the sense that like political and military and kind of empires and all these things, there there's something of a progression forward there in the sense that there's a clear step towards something greater or worse. Um, but um, with art, it's a much more nuanced and kind of all over the place, I feel. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect example. I was going to bring up some weird music thing from the 13th century that nobody would have heard of. So Impressionism is a fantastic example of that. So you can have a golden age within a fashion, within a style, within a discipline. So you could have a golden age of Gothic architecture, but I'm not sure you could have sort of uh, objectively a golden age of architecture as an entire discipline. And I feel like I want to offer a counterpoint to the idea of that the that a golden age of of a of a of a craft versus of a culture are are different because we've talked about how we've talked about how a golden age requires hindsight. It's you never know you're in one until it'll, until it's over. And and I was going to bring up impressionism too when. In the Impressionism era, or in that general era of time, this was right after photography had gotten invented, art started to change a lot because now that you could easily capture realism with the click of a button, art started to get really experimental. And at the time, like the old masters who had mastered the old, you know, the old Renaissance style of, you know, of picture perfect, they were just so against all this new weird art that just didn't look right. And at the time, it was you know quite controversial. But then, given a couple decades down the line, when it got some traction and some some popularity, people started looking back at you know Monet as you know this great genius, uh, or Monet or um, Van Gogh as this this great genius who was ahead of his time. So I think that with craft, perception also matters almost probably just as much as a golden age of a culture or a people. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point um, because it, it again it's kind of almost too easy to fall prey to the exact thing, uh, same thing because we're living in a, an area like we live in. Obviously, everyone has kind of lived in an era where new styles are coming to the fore, new things are being tried. So it's easy for us looking back to kind of look at something like impressionism and say, "Well, everybody was always on board with that." When you know, not everybody today is on board with. Uh, I don't know. Um, I need a popular culture reference. Uh, Banksy. Uh, yeah, Banksy. Like, not everybody is uh, uh, enamoured with Banksy. I you know, obviously, a lot of people are. But Or, to use a very, very crude example, the kind of, well, I guess it was more like a golden flop, but the, uh, the, the whole explosion of cinematic universes that followed the, the Marvel trend, you know, people will look back in maybe, like, 10, 15 years or something, or maybe longer, I don't know, and say, well, you know, that was a golden age for interconnectivity and intertextuality uh, in fiction. But I mean, I know plenty of people who just hate the very idea of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they're like, well, it's all the same. It's just not, not great. It's worth pointing something out, which uh, you see in early music. Now, that's what my degree is in, so that's why I know about this. But um, until very recently, people did not want 
authentic historical things from the past. People wanted things that were current and fashionable. So, uh, for example, Mozart rewrote music by Handel. Mendelssohn rewrote music by Mozart. Everybody rewrote music by Bach. Because, yeah, fine, it was Bach, you had to respect him, he was historically important, but, you know, it sounds so much better if I write it like this with a big romantic piano accompaniment. And that was also the way that people understood and viewed the past. So there was this big change in music as there was a big change in, in sort of cultural understanding that the past wasn't necessarily, stuff in the past wasn't necessarily like dusty and old and and, um, and unappealing and old fashioned, it could be understood within the context of its time. And that's a very new kind of thinking that we have now that they absolutely didn't have in the 18th century. In the 18th century, they would look at something a little bit old and think this is old fashioned. They might look at something Roman and think, gosh, this is wonderful because that's how reception history works. Um, and so I think that when we consider golden ages, that's also something that's very, very important is how do people view the past? How do people view past trends? And that, I think, is absolutely as true within nation state golden ages or region golden ages as it is within craft golden ages. It's that that idea of, you know, of what's old and what what's old, what's new and what's good is is an interesting one, especially when you look at. Like I'm sure everyone thinks that the um, the time when they were in either when they were like in their late teens was the golden age of memes, <laughs> because I work with with younger children who are like just getting into that that teenager those teenager years and they they share memes back and forth like crazy, and then a lot of the older teachers in the school don't really know any of this, but I came of age like right when like the Numa Numa guy was a thing when the Chuck Norris jokes were a thing. So I, I, I'll, I'll tell students like, don't, don't talk to me about memes. You don't know what you're talking about. But again, it all comes back to that perception is that, you know, I view them, you know, the memes of my early college years as the best, whereas they've got, you know, whatever the hell's going on with them. Yeah, absolutely. In the 18th century, uh, there was a conference of musicians who came together to discuss whether Bach was a good composer or not. And the, uh, the outcome was, He's, he's all right, but he's really old fashioned. So he's not that good because he's really old fashioned. He's writing really old fashioned stuff. So he can't be that great. You know, like that's amazing. Freaking Bach, right? Van Gogh as well. Like everybody loves his paintings now, but you know, the man was not treated kindly for actually daring to do it. And that was a big downfall for him. Like he ended up committing suicide. So. You know, it's it, yeah. There's definitely an element of people can be very, very judgmental and picky about what they consider good, and um, so that can kind of act as almost a filter on what gets considered a golden age, because if it doesn't align with their moral, political, and cultural views, it gets shut down hard. I think there's really something into the idea, into the fact that we keep when we're discussing golden ages, we keep looping back to the idea of perspective. And I think that's gonna, that's quite obviously the central theme of this podcast in your golden ages, whether in golden ages that you world build is to make sure that there's some ambiguity there and that it's not taking place in the present. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I always recommend uh, for our world builders to do when, when people ask me about this, is to consider a world setting and even a, a region setting, even a city setting from different point of view characters. So what is the city like from somebody working on the docks compared to somebody living in the castle, compared to somebody serving in the cathedral? What does the day-to-day -day life look like? What is the quality of living like? What do people see, hear, smell around them? And I think that is within world settings, a wonderful way to convey the variety even within something that might be considered a golden age you know it, it even the golden ages that are the goldenest are never golden for everyone so what is the disparity like wealth disparity experiential disparity yeah um that's that's absolutely true and um, for something of a kind of somewhat extreme example or historical example of this in action you you only have to look at um 
uh, again to wave the Irish flag, Ireland in the kind of 1700s, you know, because this is just after um, the English have kind of firmly established that, yes, they actually do own this land. Thank you very much. Uh, and the Scottish have also um, moved in up north and everything's going to be great up there forever. Uh, but <laughs> so there's this real sense of for the vast majority of the kind of the native Irish and also not even just the native Irish, there's also ethnic groups like the old English who would have traditionally been um, actually quite well regarded by, um, you know, the kind of the greater English um, administration because they were vital allies in holding down territory outside of English control. And um, yes, they, they, they pretty much established that Ireland had no flag, <laughs> Janet. Uh, but uh, so you get in this kind of age where all the land and all the power is being concentrated in a, a minority that's of a different faith, uh, a largely different ethnic background. They speak a different language. Um, there's like a, there's a there's a world of difference between them, um, and they kind of go through a golden age. This Protestant, though really it should be Anglican if we're nitpicking, uh, this Protestant ascendancy actually sees the the 1700s are kind of a great time for them because you know they're in charge and things are going well in terms of trade for the economy since they're up at the top but if you look at the actual and it's even a, a time of great peace rather surprisingly in irish history and you you kind of it starts off after the the williamite war to tie very vaguely back into the jacobine rebellion you know uh it ties to like kind of there was the glorious revolution in England um, uh, and then everything's kind of going great for them. And then it's also capped off at the end by a popular revolt, uh, which kind of leads into the fact that it was great for the people who were in power, who were benefiting from what was effectively colonialism in the sense that they had grabbed all the land um, and wealth, but for the average person, or the average like native Irish person up north, you know, things were not great. Um, in fact, a lot of the policies in, in kind of enforced things like you had to split your land and the farmers or Catholic farmers had to split their land um, between their sons to ensure that there was no kind of ability to concentrate land or wealth in the family. Uh, they were barred from actually participating in any public jobs. You know, you couldn't be a lawyer if you were Catholic. Um, and then this even kind of affected Protestant groups that weren't on the tippy the top. Um, up in Northern Ireland, for example, a lot of the, the newly settled British population were from Scotland, and so they were Presbyterian, and they had it better. And Ulster and kind of started booming or growing in this period, but they were still kept under the rung. So if you talked to a, a, an Anglican during this time period, they would probably be like, this is a great time to be, you know, Anglican. You even see an outgrowth of Irish patriotism. Like there's an active group who are going, actually being Irish is great. We should become an Irish state and not join the union, which we will do when we get bribed to. And so, yeah, I, I'm rambling far too much, but there's a kind of, if you look at this period, it's not great for a lot of people. It actively sets up some of the, the worst things in Irish history. The famine, a lot of the groundwork is being laid here for governmental neglect. Um, a, da a large segment of the population dangerously dependent on potatoes, but these things are kind of ignored. Um, even when the, the ethnic group, the, the kind of the Anglo-Irish after this golden age passes, they start looking back, you know, it's seen as a great time for them. Um, even if in reality, it was pretty terrible for everybody else. So we've talked about and kept circling back towards the ideas that golden age is largely a idea of perception about hindsight, but if you are going to have something, so it's going to end. So how would you say one of these golden ages in hindsight, what marks the end of one, whether through reality or through perception? 
Well, the, the obvious one is something like systems collapse, which you see in the Mediterranean, the late Bronze Age, where literally everything falls apart. We don't quite know why that one happened. There are a lot of theories involving tidal waves and various other things. But um, yeah, systems collapse is a great way to bring any system to its knees very, very quickly. And you can have a bunch of reasons why you can have, you know, terrible, terrible famines that, that just mean that there's there's this horrible period of, of um, scarcity. You could have a natural disaster. But yeah, either way, systems collapse is a very, very good way to end a golden age very decisively. To sort of continue on with that in that vein, um, I think a good way for a golden age to fail or to end entails sort of a loss of unity, um, be that political unity or unity between the peoples, even though we've already discussed how there's not, there's never going to be uniform unity throughout any society in a golden age, but just some lack thereof or general growing disparity between the people living through this um, golden age. And you could also, from uh, the perspective of art or culture, a golden age could end if it could be like perceived to have ended when kind of a great person of the movement dies. And, um, you know, if someone who's been at the forefront of all this cultural innovation uh, ends up dying um, of cancer or something, or a new monarch comes in, you know, you like Elizabeth, like Elizabethan, Edwardian, Georgian, there's like very distinct periods that are marked by the, the change in people. Um, so you can always lean into that and say, well, in this year, Emperor uh, Rock the First died. And so began, so ended the golden age of crafting uh, or having pet rocks or something. I think that's a really good point because. Um... One of the things that we touched on is, uh, you know, golden ages are times of stability, but when a monarch changes, that's an incredible time of instability that we kind of don't consider anymore because so many nation states have their lineages, at least European nation states have their lineages very sort of cemented or they have presidencies, so it works in a different way. But uh, yeah, it used to be that when you got a new monarch, they might be too young to rule it yet, so then you would have a regency, which were super spoopy and often very problematic. Or, you know, there might be several claimants for a throne, which meant instant war and chaos and, you know, the end of any hope of any kind of golden age. That's such a good point, Sean. Sad, scared American really agreeing with that right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we've, we, we've brought grievances against the English into this one. We might as well. Might as well talk about our particular national tragedy, but moving on. Um, I do, I think that a very, I think that if we're talking about golden ages in historical, in a historical point, that idea of the transition of power is a really important one uh, from a historical perspective, because that's how historians like to delineate things. Like King Rock the first died, all hail King Pebble or, you know, whatnot. Um, so, I mean, uh, the ch uh, change in power, whether it actually ends the golden age or not, can be viewed as the end. Um, or for when we were talking about the golden age of a craft, it could be the falling out of favor of a certain particular technique or the development of a new one could also uh, mark the end. So I suppose what I'm punching at here is that you need a very, very significant change that is both visible in hindsight, that is that is visible in hindsight, whether or not it actually ends the golden age or not. So I think we've had a, a, lot, a really good recording episode this time around for our, our second shot. So I'll ask each of you for, um, for kind of a wrap up comment, just, you know, speak on golden ages, uh, what you think, what you think the most important thing for our audience to know if they want to both make them and present them to an audience someday. So golden ages are fantastic political tools to manipulate people into doing stuff. They are really powerful to use. 
um, particularly if they maybe once existed rather than actually existing now because you're in a time of crappiness. And in terms of world building, that is how I think they are at them at their strength, essentially. I think um, another thing to consider when world building and considering um, the inclusion of a golden age, we've talked about this a little bit, but it's always it's always interesting. So it's not necessary, I guess, but um, to include some way or some frame uh, of different perspectives of the golden age, be that people who actually believe it was a golden age or uh, people who definitely don't believe it was a golden age. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just add that don't be afraid to use kind of the idea of a golden age as a kind of way to drive things on forward, uh, even not to get into it being a fantastic political tool, but everybody wants to live in a better world. Um, so don't be afraid to have your characters express how it's like things to be like they were in the good old days or um you know people are chasing that idea of building everything better and better and kind of finally figuring out that golden formula that lets everything be great again thank you all for your contributions of this episode i think this might be the first world casting podcast where we determined our subject doesn't really exist but since we've talked about some fairly serious stuff in, in this episode, I'd like to leave you all with a rather positive quote from the English filmmaker Michael Winterbottom. When you start being enthusiastic about whatever it is you love, that is the golden age for you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the World Casting Podcast, an affiliate production of World Building Magazine. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can check out our website at worldbuildingmagazine.com where you can also find links to all of our social media and our Discord server. This episode was edited by Adam Bassett.